Hello and welcome to News Hour from the BBC World Service, coming to you live from London. I'm James Kamarasamy. Today we're keeping an eye on a launch pad in West Texas where Jeff Bezos is preparing to take a giant leap for billionaire kind with the crew of the New Shepard rocket. Uh, we'll bring you any updates on that as and when we get them. But we begin in Haiti, where after nearly two weeks of political confusion following the assassination of President Juvenal Moïse, it appears that the leadership struggle has been resolved. The interim Prime Minister, Claude Joseph, who took over in the wake of the president's killing and declared a state of siege, has announced that he's stepping down in favour of Ariel Henry, the neurosurgeon appointed very recently to the post of Prime Minister by the late president. It follows a statement released at the weekend by the United States and other countries known as the core group backing Mr Henry to form a unity government. The Americans had previously said they were supporting Claude Joseph. The US State Department spokesman Ned Price was asked about this apparent shift by a reporter on Monday. I think the statement was pretty clear um, that it called for a unity government, a consensus government, an inclusive government. Uh, as you know, Matt, we are we are taking the side of the Haitian people. We're taking the side uh, of, the, of the, the guy who was named but hadn't taken office. We are taking the side of the Haitian people. Uh, this is a dialogue that has been ongoing between various Haitian political stakeholders. Yeah, whether you want to admit it or not, there was a shift in what you had been saying prior to that statement you were all in support of the acting prime minister and then all of a sudden on saturday you and the other members of the core group came out in support of uh, uh mr matt we are supporting the inclusive dialogue that haiti's political actors are undertaking themselves uh, as you know um henri was the prime minister designate claude joseph uh, was tasked at the outset uh, to uh, attempt to form a consensus government uh, those talks uh, have led him to step aside and for Henri uh, to uh, become the acting prime minister, at least these initial reports. Well, there's a third player in Haiti's power struggle, the president of the Senate, Joseph Lambert. He has described his country as a baseball being thrown between foreign diplomats, saying that he had been told not to pitch himself as the next leader by the Americans. Well, over the weekend, civil society organisations met to decide what they wanted for Haiti's political future. Shadona Kettle is the chair of Haiti's support group and uh, joined the meeting uh, over the weekend via Zoom and she joins us now from Ecuador. Welcome to News Hour. and uh, can you tell us what was discussed at the meeting? Hi there, good morning. Um, yes, so this was a, an historic occasion um, in Haiti and with the diaspora. So we had Haitians, you know, meeting in Port-au-Prince um, f from civil society actors to political actors who have been meeting over the past week and the weekend and via Zoom with the Haitian diaspora. And really the idea was to come to a consensus on what, they, what Haitians wanted the transition period and gov new government to look like, really. And Did you um, reach a consensus? There were some points that were um, that were drawn to at the end of the meeting, and really, it was to have a president, prime minister, a transition, a transition period of between eighteen to twenty-four months, and all using the framework of the nineteen eighty-seven constitution. And what of the identity of the prime minister? Does uh, Ariel Henry fit the bill? Well, um, according to our partners on the ground, 
you know, this this decision was made by, you know, the core group, again, without the actual consensus of Haitians themselves, um, but rather decisions, again, being made for them externally. So given that um, Ariel Henry uh, was part of the former president, Jovenel Moïse, you know, whose government at the time wasn't, you know, it wasn't actually in play, the parliament had dissolved as of January 2020, the situation doesn't really bode well for Haitian society. Is there anything you can do to influence the situation? I think at the international level, what we can do is continue to show our solidarity. And on August the 1st, the Haiti Support Group will be having um, our an annual meeting whereby we invite people, especially those um, of Haitian descent, to join us um, so we can actually hear from them how we as an international society can support what exactly they want and put pressure on this core group, um, including uh, the UK. And in terms of what Haiti needs, you know, we're talking about the politics, we're talking about a political uh, squabble in the wake of a presidential assassination, but the economic challenges are huge, aren't they? Yes, the economic um, situation is dire. Um, and, you know, throughout the world, we're all going through um, a health crisis. So really, um, the proposition from the society, from Haitian civil society actors of, uh, you know, having a, a decent amount of time for, election, for an election period to take place is very much needed because the way things are, um, you know, they're going to need a lot of time, uh, a lot of decision making, inclusive decision making to make the right decisions that are appropriate for Haitian people. And this did not come out of nowhere, the assassination, you know, a long running political uh, impasse, um, questions about the legitimacy, of course, of the president and people out in the streets. I mean, what, what do you foresee in the short term? In the short term, what is hoped really is that Haitian civil society um, and Haitians themselves can actually insert their voices into the politics that affect them. Um, and really what is needed is for the situation in Haiti, um, particularly tackling crime, will need to be um, will need to be addressed so that you know the appropriate measures can be taken for Haiti to get back on track and to you know enjoy sovereignty which it hasn't been enjoying for a long time. Shadona Kettle, chair of the Haiti Support Group, thanks very much indeed. That question of crime is one that I've been addressing with Bernard Goose. He's a law professor who served as Haiti's justice minister between 2004 and 2006. Does he think that uh, Monsieur Henri taking over is the right move for Haiti? It is not a move that is welcomed by the civil society nor the other political parties. When we see the names of the cabinet members, we don't see much change from the government that Jovenel Moïse was running. It should not be the prime minister to take over. In the short term, though, given the fact that there has been these nearly two weeks of confusion about who was going to take charge, do you, do you welcome the fact that there does appear to have been an agreement, even if you view the people who are making the agreement as not the ones who should be taking Haiti forward, but at least it has avoided potentially a very damaging power struggle. 
Yes, it was a very sad power struggle. Having Claude Joseph clinging to power was uh, very sad and had people even think that maybe he had something to profit from the from the murder of the president. So his legitimacy was very, very weak. And the legitimacy of Ariel Henry was a little bit more solid. That's what motivated the international community, the ambassadors from France and the European Union, Canada and the United States, to say that they would prefer to have Mr. Henry run the government. You know him, don't you? Has he got what it takes to, to run Haiti at this time in its history? I know Mr. Henry. He's not a friend of mine, but I, I know him. He could intellectually has the, the capabilities, the abilities to run a government. But now does he have the, the political ground to run that government and to be accepted by the country? That is another question. And what about taking on corruption, powerful armed gangs? These are huge challenges. Is he up to those? I don't know whether he has the political clout to do that. Who is in charge? Who controls Haiti at the moment? Is it the political class or is it the, the armed gangs. We saw one of the main gang leaders, the man they call Barbecue, filming an address in front of uh, the Haitian flag a couple of weeks ago, wearing military fatigue, threatening to call armed men onto the streets. Is someone like him the real power, the real figure that, that has power in the country? <laughs> For people in the streets and people in the neighborhoods and especially people in the suburbs of Port-au-Prince, the gang leaders like the sinister character that you just mentioned and uh, other real power holders, they control the entries, the north and the south entries of, of the capital city, and the police doesn't have the firepower to take them out. So for the people there and who cannot go to work, who have to flee their house. The real leaders of this country are sadly the gang leaders. The normal life has been completely destroyed by those people who ransacked houses, who rape women, who kidnap everyone at will. Why can't the politicians deal with it? Are they in, in the pockets of gang leaders? Political leaders from all sides had relied on gang members to get entry into the slums, providing them with drugs, providing them with weapons, etc. And now those gang leaders see themselves as the real masters and they don't want to take orders anymore. Now they have the upper hand over the, the politicians. Well, other people would see the masters of the politicians as the foreign diplomats who seem to be pushing their hand very much on the scales and deciding who they would like to see leading the country. In terms of Haiti's future, having the international community play such a forceful role, does it help or does it hinder? It hinders. It hinders because in the aftermath of Moise's death, hours later, you had UN Secretary General's representative who said that Mr. Joseph will run the country till the elections. And now, one week after, the same ambassadors are saying, okay, now it will be Mr. Henry. This is seen as a grotesque and a gross, a gross emission of the international community in internal affairs. You have international ambassadors pushing for something that the Haitian community doesn't want. How does Haiti get out of what, what you're describing as something of a straitjacket? We are in a straitjacket, as you say. I don't see Mr. Henry getting 
much legitimacy in the coming months if he doesn't reach out to the civil society and to go after people who are perceived largely to have profited from corruption and to go after those gang leaders, he will face mounting opposition in the months ahead if life is still difficult in terms of security, in terms of corruption, and there is no change, of course, the opposition now will be expressing itself in the streets. That was Haiti's former Justice Minister, Bernard Goose. We uh, did try to contact uh, Mr. Henry for an interview, but uh, without success. Uh, there has been success, though, for Jeff Bezos, the uh, billionaire. The founder of Amazon has uh, blasted off to the edge of space uh, on his new Shepard rocket, together with his brother, uh, the 82-year-old space race pioneer Wally Funk and the 18-year-old student Oliver Damon. You're listening to NewsHour from the BBC World Service. Coming up later on in the programme, the Bay of Bengal's climate refugees driven out of their homes by cyclones and rising waters. I don't earn enough to bring my wife and son to Kolkata. There are many like me living here. Our circumstances have completely changed now. We are now only thinking about survival. The headlines of this hour. The Amazon founder Jeff Bezos has just become the second billionaire this month to blast into space. A study of the scale of COVID-related deaths in India says the true figure may be up to 10 times higher than officially acknowledged. Reports from Mali say the interim president has survived a knife attack at a mosque in Bamako and a South Korean mountaineer who has scaled all of the world's highest peaks despite having no fingers has gone missing during his latest expedition. You're listening to the BBC World Service. This is NewsHour, coming to you live from London with James Kamarasamy. A minute's silence has been observed in Belgium on a day of national mourning for the victims of last week's flooding in northwestern Europe. At least 31 people are known to have died in the country, which saw the highest number of deaths after Germany. King Philippe and the Belgian Prime Minister Alexander de Croix met rescue workers and victims of the flooding in Verviers near the city of Liège, and church bells rang out across the city. Well, just before the memorial ceremony began, I spoke to the acting deputy mayor of Liège, Christine Defren. Well, of course, this is a tragedy. It's a catastrophic situation because we have almost 30,000 people hit in a way or another. And we have to take care of them, to help them. They are without electricity, some without water, without gas, without food and drinking. So we have to take care of the people and then to host them, to have shelter and, of course, to estimate the needs in the future to relocate those people. And, of course, it will last for weeks, for months, before we can see a better future. On the the human cost of this, have you accounted for everyone? Are there still people missing? No, we have 32 deaths. But a lot of casualties as well, and still 150 
people missing. And well, it seems to be less important, but besides those people, there are also a lot of animals and people grieving also for those companions lost and, and dead. So that's a part of the psychological rehearsal as well. But the human cost seems to be huge and we are expecting more and more deaths and casualties and fatalities. You were able to put out a warning to to call for people to evacuate their homes yeah. uh, before that happened. I mean, huh? did people listen to that? Well, part of them, because people didn't come no longer in the city, people stayed at home for working or for shopping or for everything, they stayed home. And the people in their home, well, they were aware and warned of the danger. And so everyone takes his responsibility. So some people went off and left their homes, but some stayed and climbed to the upstairs and first floor, second floor. I think that the advice was at least listened. Do you think there are lessons to learn from this experience though? Yes, of course, many lessons. Um, there was the, the problem of the running of the water up the river, the dam, and also services of protection. I think that we had a lack of equipment, a lack of machine, of boat, of everything. And I think also that the common chain could have been better. So today is the time of looking for solution for people, for infrastructure, of course, for mobility, for everything, to be back at a normal life. And tomorrow will be the day of looking for what went wrong or not. You said, you said that this is going to take weeks, perhaps longer, to, 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 to repair the damage, the physical damage that's been done. Where are you starting to do that and what about finding the money for this how much of a challenge is that going to be ah, that's a, that's a huge problem we have uh, what we call the Fond de Calamité, Calamity Fund, but we're looking towards Europe and we hope that Europe will do her job. We have that terrible impression to have to do everything on our own and not to be helped enough. And that's why I long for the help of the federal fund, first of all, but also the European help, European aid, the proof of the truth truth, as we say in French, or the proof, uh, the truth hour for European Union. The hour of truth. The hour of truth, yes. The hour of truth, because we'll see if she can help handle and run things for the population. Christine Defrenia, acting deputy mayor of Liège in Belgium. The 11 minutes of truth appear to be over for Jeff Bezos. Successfully, his uh, rocket has uh, landed back on Earth after getting to the edge of space. Now, the uh, world champion Lewis Hamilton won his eighth British Grand Prix at Silverstone on Sunday. A familiar winner, but uh, in a sport that insists it's looking at new ways to reduce its impact on the environment. Formula One's managing director has told the BBC that sustainability is the key to the future of F1. Here's our chief environment correspondent, Justin Rowlatt. 
roar of the engines and the smell of the exhaust is what Formula One is all about for many fans. So how does a sport born out of the awesome explosive power of fossil fuels go green? And it all, and the, the, the sort of action happens... That is the challenge Ross Braun has taken on. I met him at his home in the south of England. Braun is the engineer behind Michael Schumacher's seven world titles. He's now F1's managing director of motorsports and says he is determined to put sustainability at the heart of the sport. But electric engines are a non-starter, he told me. There is no electric solution today. We want the drivers to drive for an hour and a half full power. We don't want them looking at power conservation modes and trying to make the battery last long enough to get to the end of the race or saving the battery up so in the last five laps they can really go. That doesn't seem to engage the fans. Your instinct, it sounds to me, is that possibly hydrogen is the maybe the solution that you'll settle on. Why not say now, look, go out there, guys, design us a hydrogen engine that delivers what we want and, you know, you can start racing it. Maybe hydrogen is the route that Formula 1 can have, where we keep the noise, we keep the emotion, but we move into a different solution. Silverstone, on the day of the season's most exciting Grand Prix, the British Grand Prix. The cars have come a long way since Jackie Stewart won the British Grand Prix in 1969, but for the moment, F1's focus remains on engineering even more efficient hybrid engines and developing biofuels and synthetic e-fuels that will reduce the sport's impact on the environment. Honda has announced it is pulling out of Formula One this year to concentrate, the carmaker says, on engineering carbon-free automotive technology. And there has been criticism from some environmentalists who say F1 is relying too much on offsetting. But the recognition that environment is a key issue for the sport runs deep, including with the people on the front line of Formula One, its drivers. British driver Lando Norris is a rising star of F1. It's definitely something that um, over the coming years I'll pay more and more attention to and, and get involved in more and more, realising you know, the opportunity you can create for the, for, for the world and the impact you can have on not just uh, certain people. So, of course, it means a lot to me. In whatever way I can help, then I'll try and do that. Formula One represents the pinnacle of automotive technology. But the car industry is going electric and F1 knows it could end up looking like a legacy from a past age. And that was our Chief Environment Correspondent Justin Rowlatt reporting. You're listening to the BBC World Service. This is NewsHour, coming to you live from London with James Kamarasamy. Welcome back to NewsHour. And now for our daily look at the impact of climate change. We're going to hear from the Sundarbans Delta in the Bay of Bengal, where melting ice from the Himalayas is gradually overwhelming low-lying land and creating thousands of refugees. The BBC's Debalin Roy has visited some of those who are already feeling the impact of climate change. When Cyclone Yas hit the Sundarbans, the Mundal family was among thousands of islanders whose homes were destroyed. The islands in the delta have been left increasingly vulnerable to storms as the mountain glaciers melt and sea levels rise. Prabhat Mandal and his wife Fulora, who live on Shonagha Island, 
आर नाउ क्लाइमेट रेफ्यूजीज ये नोदीबाद भें The embankments have been destroyed by the increasing flow of the river, so we are forced to live here in temporary tents. Almost every year, we are being forced to live like this. Despite the danger of cyclones and the devastation caused by flooding, the Mandals don't feel able to leave. We don't have the resources. Where will we look for jobs? We don't know anyone. No one here has the resources. At present, we will all have to die here. There is no way out. Some islanders do leave, often the men, and they leave their families behind. Sheikh Mustakin works in a garment factory in Kolkata. He was a farmer on Moshuni Island before saltwater flooding ruined the land. I don't earn enough to bring my wife and son to Kolkata. There are many like me living here. Our circumstances have completely changed now. We are now only thinking about survival. Sheikh Mustakin's wife, Firoza Khatun, must look after her child and cope with the storms back on Moshuni Island alone. I feel lonely, but I can't tell anyone. Who can I talk to except my husband and he is not around. My son talks about his father a lot, but I try to keep him busy with games and studying. He cries a lot when his father leaves, but he settles down. Authorities have built embankments to protect the islands, but they are frequently breached by the water. Professor Shugoto Hazra from Jadavpur University says the Sundarbans must be urgently protected. If we lose Sundarbans, then finally the sea will come to our doorstep in Calcutta. We not only lose five to ten million people, but we also lose a global heritage that should be protected by the global effort. For now, locals say they feel abandoned as they grapple with the reality of climate change in one of the world's most vulnerable regions. That was uh, Debalin Roy reporting from the uh, Bay of Bengal. You're listening to the BBC World Service. This is NewsHour, coming to you live from London with James Kamarasamy. On yesterday's programme, we reported on the lifting of coronavirus restrictions in England and the unfortunate timing for the government, with Prime Minister Boris Johnson self-isolating because his health secretary had tested positive for COVID-19, a day that he had hoped to present as a great national throwing off of shackles, instead saw him conducting an evening news conference from his country retreat at a time when UK case numbers are approaching their highest ever during the pandemic. To further darken the Prime Ministerial mood, Mr Johnson's unshackled and disgruntled former top adviser Dominic Cummings has now given his first one-on-one broadcast interview. Mr Cummings, who left Downing Street at the end of last year, has already been scathing about his former boss's handling of the pandemic, both on social media and in appearances before a parliamentary committee. In his interview with the BBC's political editor Laura Koonsberg, he said this about Mr Johnson's response to calls for a new lockdown as case numbers rose last autumn. His attitude at that point was a weird mix of partly it's all nonsense and lockdowns don't work anyway and partly, well, this is terrible but the people who are dying are essentially all over 80 and we can't kill the economy just because 
of people dying over 80. And he also alleged that towards the beginning of the pandemic, he'd stopped Mr Johnson from having a face-to-face meeting with the Queen. I said, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm going to see the Queen. And I said, what on earth are you talking about? Of course you can't go and see the Queen. He said, uh, well, that's what, I, that's what I do every Wednesday, sod this, I'm going to go and see her. Uh, I said, um, I really don't think you should do that. Look around this office. There's people in this office who are isolating. You might have coronavirus. I might have coronavirus. You can't go and see the Queen. What if you go and see her and then give the Queen coronavirus? Like, obviously, you can't go. Well, let's speak now to our political correspondent, Rob Watson. Uh, Rob, more serious allegations from Dominic Cummings. Uh, what is Downing Street saying in response? Downing Street is saying in response to rather obvious things you might say, James. One is they're letting letting it be known through allies that the, this is the, 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 the revenge tour of Dominic Cummings having fallen out with, with Boris Johnson and left office and also... You know, that also what you need to look at, they would say, is, is, is the outcome, not the process. In other words, yes, decision making, if you release people's WhatsApp messages, can look a bit messy. But in the end, they argue that the, the prime minister did his best for people's health, even if he sounds incredibly uh, callous and chaotic in these messages. So the timing, unfortunate with everything else that's going on. But uh, in terms of potential political damage this will cause? What's your assessment? Well, normally having your former chief advisor, James, describe you as callous, chaotic, careless and incompetent would be fatal. But you know what's coming next. These are not really normal times. And what I mean by that is that since the referendum in 2016, the the country has split into two pretty fierce tribes. There's the the pro-Brexit and pro-Boris tribe on the one hand. And on the other hand is the the, the Brexit sceptics and anti-Boris tribe on the other. And at this point, at any rate, that the pro-Boris tribe is just not receptive to any criticism. They, they tend to, to price all this into their assessment. And, and as for the, for the anti-Boris, anti-Brexit camp, for, for them, this kind of revelations just confirm what they've thought all along, that the prime minister is, is unfit for high office. So, you know, in a funny sort of way, counterintuitively, in the short term, I don't think it makes much difference. I add this one little caveat, though, and that is that there are a number of concerns Conservative MPs who are rather sceptical about Mr Johnson's uh, uh, skills uh, in governing. And uh, and this would sort of feed into their concerns. But as long as they're winning, as long as Mr Johnson is winning votes and winning elections and is popular and keeps that tribe, the pro-Boris, pro-Brexit tribe happy, well, you know, I think you'll see them keep quiet. For all the question marks over Mr Cummings, I mean, the fact that he is on the pro-Brexit side of the argument. I mean, he was, for listeners who have not followed this closely, one of the the architects of the campaign that brought about Brexit. Does that not make a difference? In terms of making him less credible, do you mean? Well, I mean, either way, in terms of how the public looks at this. Well, you're absolutely right that some Brexiteers will say, oh, well, you know, when when, when Dominic Cummings was the mastermind of Brexit, you didn't listen to him, uh, you dismissed him. But now that he's criticising Boris Johnson, you're saying, what a good egg. Do you know, I, I don't think it really makes any difference. I think all, all, what makes a difference is that is that he is an insider. Uh, some of the, uh, the sort of verbatim criticisms of Boris Johnson ring rather true 
true. But again, I, I go back to the central point, and, and this could, of course, change, change, James. But at the moment, that you know, that the people around Boris Johnson who support him, the people out in the country who support him, and who like Brexit, it, it just, it just, it just, none of it makes any difference. They're just not listening to any criticism of, of their man and of Brexit, and and particularly, or particularly, his handling of COVID crisis either. Rob, thanks very much. Our political correspondent, Rob Watson, there. Well, from the politics of the pandemic to the medical response to one of the long-term consequences of COVID. Many patients have difficulty breathing. It's thought that around 2% of people who are infected with the virus have some form of permanent scarring on their lungs. Now, a clinical trial at Guy's and St Thomas's Hospital in London has been looking at a new form of treatment that could undo the damage. Our health correspondent, Catherine Burns, reports. Breathe normally for me. Normal. In and out. Breathing normally isn't something Mike Salmon takes for granted anymore. You get used to it, but yeah, you just have to think every now and then about, okay, you can't do everything that you could do before. He spent five weeks on a ventilator after getting COVID in March last year. He's doing much better, but is back in hospital for some tests. And boom! Keep going, keep going, keep going. Don't stop. All the way out, all the way out. Mike's lungs can only do about 60% of what they're used to because COVID has left them with scars. This makes it harder for his lungs to deliver oxygen to his body properly. Blow, 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 nearly there. And relax. That was a very good effort. Okay, thank you. Now, though, he's taking part in a clinical trial to try to undo that damage and it's reunited him with someone he had a big impact on. So the first time I saw you, Mike, was right in the peak of the first wave. Lily Benton is a research nurse, but during the pandemic, she's also worked in intensive care and looked after Mike at his sickest. He was unconscious at the time, though. That day, I remember it so clearly because it was so busy. We had so many patients and you were really unwell. Yeah, I must admit, Lily, I don't remember it at all, actually, at the time I was just sleeping. I'm so glad that you were there to help me. It must have been really, really difficult for you at that time with so much going on. It, yeah, it was super stressful. It was so scary and we didn't really know what was going to happen and, you know, we didn't even know if we caught COVID what would happen because we yes. just knew nothing about the disease. Lily didn't see Mike again for a few weeks, but he became something of a symbol of hope for her. I just remember it so clearly because you were actually one of the first people that I saw make that progress. Really? Yeah, and it was like a completely seminal moment for me because I just hadn't seen that. I really felt like it just gave me that extra strength really to carry on. Well, <laughs> thank you. It's brilliant for me. Lily is back in her real job now as a research nurse and she was delighted when Mike's name came up on the list of volunteers. The treatment in this trial starts with Mike himself, or at least his cells. Researchers have developed an advanced therapy they hope will essentially eat up the scars, leaving healthy tissue behind. All Mike had to do was give a bag of blood. So right now we are in our clinical research facility right. and the blood is taken from the patients here. Dr Ashish Patel is leading the trial and takes me on a quick tour. And the beauty of Guy's and St Thomas's Hospital is that we just have to walk out a few yards and that's where the cells are then manufactured for the, for the patient. So and then brought back here to be given back to them? Absolutely. So it's all done on site? Absolutely. So just around the corner from the ward is a carefully controlled laboratory. It cannot be contaminated, so before anyone can go any further, they need to get properly kitted out. On goes a hairnet, special plastic shoe covers, 
a lab coat and gloves. And what they're currently doing is they're washing out the red cells from the patient's blood donation. Is this machine essentially spinning it around like a big wash cycle? It's exactly that, and that allows us to isolate the white cells, the immune cells. Next, the white blood cells are primed to heal the damaged tissue. This is then made into a treatment that's transfused back into the patients. The hope is that the benefits will build up over time and become permanent. For me, this trial is very exciting because there are a large number of patients who have problems with their breathing after recovering from COVID and they have no real treatment options. I think we have the ability now to possibly use their own cells to treat their lung scarring and time will tell whether or not these cells are really effective. All this work doesn't come cheap. This trial involves five patients so far and costs about £30,000 each. Researchers are hoping for more funding for a bigger study soon. As for Mike, he just feels grateful to have come so far. My biggest concerns at the time, at one stage, when I was laying there recovering, was um, maybe I'll never be able to walk properly again because obviously my breathing's so bad and I'm thinking, is this it? Then every day there's a positive. If this is the best I get to be, it's not bad, really. If it helps me get better, that's brilliant. That was uh, Mike Salmon ending that report about that clinical trial taking place in London by our health correspondent, Catherine Burns. And as we've been reporting, while we've been on air, the new Shepard rocket containing the Amazon founder Jeff Bezos and three crew members has taken off from a launch pad in West Texas. T minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4. Command engine start. 2, 1. Ignition. We have lift off. Shepard cleared the south. <laughs> and New Shepard has cleared the tower on our way to space with our first human crew. Go, Jeff, go, Mark, go, Wally, go, Oliver. You are going to space. They went to space, to the edge of it at least. The flight itself lasted about 11 minutes and then the capsule returned, landing in a cloud of dust. Welcome back to Earth, first step. Congratulations to all of you. Well, all of you includes... 82-year-old Wally Funk, uh, the space pioneer, was one of those uh, three other crew members together with Jeff Bezos's brother, Mark, and uh, 18-year-old student Oliver Damon. And if you'd like to hear more from Wally Funk herself, there is a rather splendid BBC documentary called Women With The Right Stuff. You can find it on uh, bbcworldservice.com. Just a reminder, if you miss any live editions of this programme, you can always catch up with our podcast, which we update uh, twice a day, seven days a week. Just look for BBC NewsHour podcast in your search engine. It's free to download. And if you want to get in touch with us about anything you hear on the programme, you can always do that on Twitter. At BBC World Service is the network's handle. You can get in touch with me directly at BBC Jamie Koo. You're listening to the BBC World Service, and this is NewsHour, coming to you live from London with James Kamarasamy.
A reminder of our top story this hour, the acting Prime Minister of Haiti, Claude Joseph, has agreed to step down to make way for a rival politician, Ariel Henry, who's backed by the international community. But despite the political musical chairs, a former justice minister of the country, Bernard Goose, told NewsHour who he thinks is really in charge in Haiti. The real leaders of this country are sadly the gang leaders. The normal life has been completely destroyed by those people who ransacked houses, who raped women, who kidnapped everyone at will. The headlines of this hour, the Amazon founder Jeff Bezos has become the second billionaire this month to blast into space. And a study of the scale of COVID-related deaths in India says the true figure may be up to 10 times higher than officially acknowledged. You're listening to the BBC World Service. This is NewsHour, coming to you live from London with James Kamarasamy. The Delta variant of the coronavirus is causing case numbers to spike in countries which have been previously spared the worst of the pandemic. Among those is Myanmar in Southeast Asia, where official figures suggest that case numbers are doubling every week, although the WHO thinks that limited testing capacity could be masking the true picture. Further complicating Myanmar's healthcare situation is its political one. The military government, which seized power in a coup in February, has its own hospital network. There are also hard-to-access private hospitals, while a group of doctors who support the anti-government civil disobedience movement, or the CDM, are operating outside official channels. May is originally from Myanmar. She now lives outside the country and has been trying to help her family to find help for her uncle, Unfortunately, he recently died from COVID. She told me what had happened to him. About a week ago, my uncle uh, was diagnosed with COVID-19 and he decided to move himself to a hotel room so that he could self-isolate. And then a couple of days later, he couldn't breathe and his oxygen levels became really low. So we started searching for oxygen cylinders. But there's just so much information on Facebook And there are just quite a lot of like places where you're supposed to be queuing up and getting your cylinders like refilled. And these things are all new for everybody. But there's just so much, so many numbers. And we tried to call so many of them, but none of them worked. A lot of them actually shut off their phones. And some of the people who answered told us that they've been told by the military to shut down their factories and they're not allowed to give oxygen refills for anybody without a signature from a township head and a doctor from the military approved doctor from a military approved clinic or a hospital and that's also nearly impossible so we couldn't get any um, cylinder and we just tried to like ask our friends and and we got ourselves one cylinder and we thought he was going to be okay but a couple of days later he was getting really worse and we couldn't get any more um, oxygen cylinders And we tried to find a hospital for him, but the private hospitals are all fully booked and the military-owned hospitals don't even allow like people like us, like common civilians, to approach them. They don't even want people to enter the uh, the hospital compounds. So um, my uncle died because we couldn't get him the medical care that he needed. We try our very best to ask, like, some of the CDM doctors to come to help us and they did come but they're also like it's also impossible for them to help us because they're 
not in a facility and they don't have any of the equipment that they needed to help him. So people have to queue up with empty oxygen cylinders to to get oxygen and that's controlled, access to that is controlled by the the military authorities. Is that a fair assessment? At the beginning of the week, people could queue up for, and these are not like, you know, one or two hour queues. Some people said that they had to queue two days or three days ahead to get their cylinders filled. But when my uncle started becoming really ill, they had this announcement, the military soldiers were going around town and they were forcibly like hoarding all the cylinders and they were also like intimidating people who were like queuing and waiting for the cylinders to be filled. And they also asked people to shut down their factories and the plants and things like that. So we just didn't know what else to do anymore. And and you're doing this from outside the country. How how, how are you even able to, to try and organise something like that from outside Myanmar when... Access uh, access well, to the internet is pretty can be pretty limited. Access to the internet is very limited, but I have a group of friends and we do have some connections, and we were able to connect to some of the CDM doctors and we connected can, through them to help my uncle. But yeah, can, would so, you just just explain um, to our listeners what, what what CDM is, please? Oh. It stands for Civil Disobedience Movement, and that's when all the civil servants in Myanmar are boycotting the military by refusing to work for them. So right now, the military is really um, focusing on cracking down on the CDM doctors. They're blaming, blaming the third wave on the doctors. They're saying that because the doctors have decided to take part in the CDM the outbreak is of COVID-19 is happening. Just to be clear then, there are basically two parallel health systems in in Myanmar at the moment. The, mili- are, the military organised one and those of people who are opposed to the junta. Yes, basically the military-owned hospitals and military staff, they basically cater to that circle only, exclusively to that circle. And the other part is the private clinics and the private hospitals and the CDM doctors who are also working together to help the public. So that's three levels, if you like. Yes. And sometimes, sometimes like the CDM doctors who, who try to help the people, they get, they get trapped in, into like being arrested because the, the soldiers would pretend to, to make calls to pretending to be patients and then they'll get detained or arrested. So when we tried to contact one of the CDM doctors for my uncle, they were very cautious because they were really worried that we were, you know, deliberately trying to trap them or something. And there were a lot of like confirmation and just trying to make sure that we're not actually from the military side and we're just trying to get help for our uncle. So in other words, you can't disentangle the pandemic from the politics. We really cannot. From the moment that my uncle became ill to the moment that he died, the military just kept blocking every single thing. And it's really difficult for us to see this as a non-political thing because they're using COVID as a weapon against all of us. We feel really helpless. What would you like to see done? What, What can the outside world do to influence the situation? We would like a non- Junta, non-military affiliated 
non-political third party, a humanitarian organization, WHO or UNHCR, to come in and disseminate the vaccines because it's really not just a domestic issue. It's a huge problem because the third wave in Burma just sort of it just happened. I couldn't I can't say it's unexpected, but it did happen really fast. And it's going to affect countries around the region. Also, we are bordering India and we're bordering China. And if if governments and international organizations could just set aside the political differences and you see this as a humanitarian crisis and it would be great because right now I really don't want anybody to have to watch their loved ones die when we know that their deaths can be prevented. That was May originally from Myanmar on her family's struggle with COVID. And it's been reported today that uh, Nian Nguyen, senior advisor to Myanmar's ousted leader Aung San Suu Kyi, has died in hospital after becoming infected with COVID-19 in jail. That brings us to an end of this edition of News Hour. From me, James Kamara Sami and the rest of the team, thanks very much for listening. Goodbye. News Hour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com/podcasts.